You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Red Deer, Alberta. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, visit us online at redemptionreddeer.ca. Well, good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. Let me uh, be the first, uh, or one of the first to... Wish you the best in the new year. May God's blessing be upon each and every one, your family, your home. As we come to God's word this morning, it's at uh, the eve of a new year, as we sometimes take at this time of year to evaluate our past walk with the Lord in the year previous and look forward to great things and mighty things from the Lord in the year ahead. I trust as we come to God's word this morning that each and every heart here would be encouraged in the Lord. We come to a very, very special passage of scripture, one that uh, throughout the ages has been uh, a high water, if you will, of the gospel presentation. It is a favorite chapter of many throughout the centuries. It has been used of God to bring many reformations and revivals many churches turning back to God as they spend time in this book of Romans. And in chapter 8 is really the end of the doctrinal sections in the book of Romans. It is a part where we have gone through from chapter 1 to chapter 8, the doctrines and the faith that we have in Christ, that Jesus Christ paid for our sins on the cross, that in him, if we believe in him as our Lord and Savior, that we can have God's righteousness in us. And as we come to this section of Romans, it begins with, uh, if there's any, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful promise to stand on as we look into the eve of a new year, no matter what might be on the horizon ahead of us, that we can say as God's children, as God's church, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All our sins have been paid for on the cross of Calvary. And the chapter ends, one at the beginning, no condemnation, it ends with no separation. That no obstacle, no challenge, no distress, no persecution, nothing that could come our way in the year ahead can separate us from God's great love for us. Well, as we uh, turn to this passage, you stand with me as we read. I'll read a selected passage to this as we won't read the entire thing, so I'll jump around a little bit. Romans 8, chapter 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We'll jump down to verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For it is for you who are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the children, the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
Verse 26 says, For in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how we ought to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here's our main passage where we start in verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all? How will he not also with us freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one that condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather was raised, who was who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake they are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. You may be seated. Wow, that's quite a passage. Let's open our time in prayer as I'd like to pray. Father, thank you for this time we have to come to your word. I pray that you would help us to see the richness of Christ's wonderful death on the cross for us and your Holy Spirit that was given to us that each of us might be new. This passage is full of contrast between the old and the new. We just thank you, Lord, that we can come and learn about Jesus' great work and how we can have no condemnation, no separation for those who are loved by you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, as we come to our passage, the main part in verse 28, it says, and we know, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This is a marvelous chapter, verse. This verse is dealing with the sovereign will of God. There's two types of will of God, three if you will, another desire of God, but we'll focus on this one, the sovereign will of God. This is the will of God that cannot be thwarted. It cannot be annihilated. It cannot be hindered. It will go forth as declared to complete, absolute completion without any hindrance whatsoever. The sovereign will of God is that will that he has purposed in Christ to call us to be his children. And what he has called is, in this passage, effectual. That is, what he says he will do, it will be done. And so, as we enter in a new year, wouldn't it be nice to know something for certain? Well, this morning we can learn something for certain. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good 
for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Sometimes the sovereign will of God is so large and big that we can't fully understand it. The sovereign will of God, for example, incorporates everything good that is going on in your life. When you are working to please him, when you are yielding to his spirit, when you are uh, ministering in the church, those are all good things that God has called us to. And those things God is using to bring his ultimate will to fruition in the universe as time goes on. And the will of God even incorporates evil, even incorporates times when we sin, times when we displease God. That is the sovereign will of God. God's commanded will is that we obey the commandments, that we follow him, we uh, put on the new self, we walk in this way. That's God's commanded will. We have a choice in times we don't fulfill that. But in God's sovereign will, everything, even the evil of this world, even the sin in my own life, God can turn to his glory. That doesn't mean God is pleased with our sin, that God doesn't tell us to sin. The passages go on and on. What shall we say? Shall we, uh, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Paul says, may it never be. And so, nonetheless, we can know that God has a plan for us, that God has a plan for this church, that he'll bring it to fruition. So let's just deal with a little bit about how we can know, how we can know for certain. Let's look at the verse 13. It says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14. And for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You know, sometimes you can ask some people, they come to you and they say, I don't really have assurance of salvation. One question you can ask them is, are you being led by the Spirit of God? Because if you are a child of God, you will be desiring to put sin in your life increasingly to death. You will be desiring increasingly to yield your heart and your mind to the will of God more and more. And it says here, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. There are ways that we can be led to help us know that we are indeed children of God. And one of those ways is the illuminating power and work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit comes along and helps us to understand God's Word. And God's Word is a light to my path, a lamp to my feet. And so as we spend time in God's Word, and as we study God's Word, the Holy Spirit helps us to understand God's Word, recalling God's Word to our memories when we're being tempted, when there's trials, when there's times of doubt, and we can stand on the promises of God. And we know that because we are being led by God's Spirit, it says, these are the sons of God. A second way we can also know 
that we are being uh, led by God, that we know God, is in verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. One of the greatest titles, one of the greatest positions that we have as God's children is that of being adopted. We can be freed from the power of death. We can be justified. We can be promised glorification, as we'll see in this passage. Those are all marvelous, wonderful truths that we can hold dear to. But adoption as God's children is one of the greatest, is the greatest, I believe, privilege that we have, is that we are actually adopted as God's children into his family. And I believe Paul is saying here, you get or receive a spirit of adoption. He's not really just talking necessarily about the legal ramifications, the legalness of adoption, which is true. This is a legal procedure that God, when he justifies us, calls us. But I think he's, Paul really is getting at the spirit of adoption that we know in our hearts, that we can sense God's leading in our lives, by which the outcome of it is that we cry, Abba, Father, which means like Daddy, like Papa, intimately, that we call God our dear Father, that we are adopted, that we are loved, that we have compassion, that we have intimate relationship with God. This is the joy and glory of being adopted as God's children. You know, in the Bible, Moses was the first spoken of as being adopted. If you remember in Exodus uh, chapter 2, I believe it is, um, God, Pharaoh was persecuting the Jews, God's ch children. They were in slavery in Egypt. And they were growing and multiplying. And the new pharaoh was afraid that they were going to take over Egypt. So he said, we'll kill all the children under two years of age. And so Moses' mom made a basket, which is the same word for ark, made a basket and put baby Moses into it and told Moses' older brother or sister, Miriam, to put Moses into the Nile River and to watch over him. And Pharaoh's daughter came across Moses and found Moses in the basket. And she saw, as it says later, that Moses was a beautiful child, that she saw and realized that he was one of the Hebrews that had been uh, trying to be sheltered. And so she adopted Moses and took him into her family. Moses was adopted. Another adoption in the Old Testament is that of Esther. About a thousand years later, after Moses, Esther was adopted. Her parents were killed, and Mordecai, her cousin, adopted her and took her into his home and treated her like a father would. And we know the beautiful story of Esther's 
that God used her to save the Jewish people. But those two adoptions are different than David's adoption of Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. Now, Jonathan had died, and his father, Saul, King Saul, died on battle. They both fell on their swords instead of being caught by the enemy. And David loved Jonathan, his friend. And David inquires throughout his kingdom, is there anyone after Jonathan, my son, does he have any offspring? And they came forward and they said, yes, Mephibosheth, he is Jonathan's son. Mephibosheth, if you don't know, he was crippled in both legs. He was, his name actually mean, meant, it means shameful one. He was from Lodabar, which is a town called the barren place, or no pasture. And so David, he inquires, finds out his friend Jonathan, who had died, had an offspring. He decides to call Mephibosheth to him and said, you come and eat at the king's table. He adopted him as his son. And Jonathan was David's friend, but Saul, his dad, was king. And so in many ways, it was dangerous for David to raise up this one who was technically a rival line. And yet David, in his great mercy, reached out to Jonathan and showed him adoption, brought him to his table, and fed him, and took care of him, found out all of his father's, Saul's previous land, and says, Mephibosheth, you're not even entitled to this, but I'm going to give this to you. David blessed him. I think that's a wonderful picture of the kind of adoption that God calls you and I to. Moses was found by the Pharaoh's daughter. He was a beautiful baby. Uh, she wanted to raise him as her own. She adopted him. Esther was raised by Mordecai, who adopted her. But he was really fulfilling the kinsman redeemer role. He really had a responsibility to Esther. And even though in that, he loved her and adopted her. But David owed nothing to Mephibosheth. Just out of his great mercy and kindness, he chose to adopt him. I believe here it says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry, Abba, Father. That's the adoption that you and I have. That the God that we have is not just some transcendent, distant, far-off God, all-powerful, all-knowing, but really doesn't care about me. God cares about you. He invites you to his table. He invites you to be one of his children. And also in verse 16 it says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children. These are, these are how we know. This is God's working in our lives. A lot of times as Christian, maybe young Christian, you just say, you know, I um, lived in my parents' house. They love God. They follow God. They take me to church, tell me to read my Bible, and on and on. And there comes a place in time where we have to accept Christ ourselves. I remember that as my own self as a young man. 
coming to the point under uh, age 20 at school, being sick, coming to God's word, never really reading God's word as a young person, much on my own, coming and reading through Matthew's gospel, getting to Matthew 11, 28, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. Those are wonderful verses. Those are wonderful times. That is where we can come. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I came to the place where I accepted Jesus. I said, I no longer am following this faith because of mom and dad. Bless them. But I am now on my own, yielding my life to Jesus and came to Christ And so the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are his children. Some ways, two ways, quickly, that we can look at his bearing witness in our lives that we can say as a young person, as an older person, how do you know? How do you know God is in your life? One is our attitudes. Our attitudes change. We are given, for example, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Those are really heart attitudes. Yes, they have actions to them. If my heart is full of love, if my heart is at peace, if I have God's kindness working in my life, if I am under self-control in my attitudes, then, of course, those will have actions. And those can bear witness to us that we are God's children. So someone can come in the new year and say, God is dead, God doesn't exist, what you believe is just all in your head. You can say, no, God leads me. God puts his spirit in me that I am adopted, that I can cry out, Abba, Father, that I have a desire in my heart to commune with the Almighty God because he has made me alive to him and that his spirit bears witness with our spirit through love, joy, peace, patience, through the fruit of the spirit and also through action. Not only that, but we can look and say, I would not be desiring to do these things on my own if, I, if God was not in my heart and in my life. It says in verse 13, and we start it, you must die, but if the Spirit, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And in other places it says in verse 16, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. And so you can give testimony that God has been working in your life. I know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. So as we come to the, our verse 28 again, we know that God causes all things. We've touched on this. All things, good, evil, bad, No matter what happens in our culture, no matter what happens in the economy, no matter what happens, whether it's good things, evil things, God has a plan. He's going to bring it to absolute completion. This is like, I like the word 
um, omni uh, omniscience. God knows all things. But wisdom is really beyond omniscience in God's knowing. It's where God takes everything, the beginning from the end, and he accomplishes his purpose absolutely perfectly, the best, the perfect way. It's that God's wisdom can take the sin, the evil, the tyrants that rise up, the sin that rises up in my own heart. God can take all that perfectly. In his wisdom, he brings it to a complete, perfect end. And so we can praise him for that. That God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purposes. So we have, in that verse, we have the assurance we know, the amount of uh, God's blessing is all things. There's nothing off the table. The appointed are those who are called, those who love God. God testifies in our heart that we love him. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. That's how we love. And so here it's saying that to those who love God, we love God, yes, but we love him only because he first loved me. He first called me. And so here we have the calling of God, the effectual calling of God. There's two types of callings, really, in the Bible. There's, like here, in the epistles, whenever it's talking about calling, it's always a calling that is to absolute completion for your salvation. God calls us in the epistles, and it is, when he says you've been called, God calls us, and he gives us the power. He's the one who restores our soul. He's the one that gives us new life. In the Gospels, we have a calling where Jesus will call and say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And some might come and some might not come. Some might hear that and most don't hear that. In John uh, 7, at the end, whoops, yeah, here we go. At John 7, 37, Jesus says, Now on the last day of the great feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. So if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is saying, as we give the gospel invitation, as we know these things, we can go out into our world, into our loved ones, our work, our neighborhoods, and we can say, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are thirsty. That is those who recognize that they have a great thirst, that their souls thirst, that they cannot find any satisfaction. They're parched. They're on the verge of death. They come with thirst, saying, I've looked everywhere, I've sought everywhere, and yet I have no hope. Jesus says, all you who are thirsty, come to me and drink. And so Jesus is telling us, I shouldn't have changed my page. <laughs> Let him come to me and drink. So when we come, that's the calling, it's an invitation. 
We give the invitation to our loved ones, our neighbors, and we trust that God draws them. That's in his hands. They might come, they might not come, but we pray and ask that God would come. And drink, he's saying, take me in. Take Jesus in, is what he is saying. Accept him, believe in him, be born again. And all that we remember is all a work of God. First Peter 1.23 says, um, we abide in him. His word abides in us. I better just read it here. First Peter 1.23. And you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding word of God. So it's God's work in our hearts. We extend the call. We offer people the gospel message. We pray and trust that God would draw him, them unto himself. According to his purpose. And so as we come and look at God's sovereign plan, he has a plan for each and every one of us. This is spelled out in verse 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he called, whom he called, these he justified, and whom he justified, these he glorified. Here we have five things quickly. We won't spend a lot of time on them. But in the five things that God does, and the point of what he's doing is in the middle of it a little bit. First, he f the five things God foreknew, he predestined, he called us, he justified, he glorified us. These are all marvelous works of the Holy Spirit in your and mine salvation. Notice one thing that's missing out of this passage here. In these verses, not faith. Faith is not spoken of. Faith is really that component of God's working in our lives that we respond in faith. But even that faith that we respond to God too was a gift from God. But here, Paul is just emphasizing from God's perspective. All these components called justified, foreknew, predestined, those are God's work in our lives from his perspective. Our perspective is yes, we respond in faith that God gives us. So it's a wonderful truth here, but in the middle of verse 29 is really two points. To become conformed to the image of his son and that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So really to be conformed or to be, um, here we have it, to be conformed to the image of his son. That is to be a copy, really, of his son. Jesus is working to make you and I into the likeness of himself. And uh, back to John 17 and the high priestly prayer, just before Jesus goes to the cross, he says in the high priestly prayer, John 17, 5, And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee, before the world was. So Jesus is saying, Father, I'm coming to the cross. Now glorify me like the glory we had prior to me emptying myself and coming and taking the servant and humanity on for our sake. 
But verse 22 is beautiful. John 15 or 17, 22 says, And the glory, Jesus says, and the glory which thou hast given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. That's what Jesus is really working to accomplish. Can you imagine the glory that Jesus had with the Father before? He was praying and looking for an anticipation to entering heaven again and to receiving, to being uh, in that position of glory and the glory of heaven at God's throne, seated at his right hand, all, making all his enemies under him. And then in verse 22, And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them. He's talking future tense. He's praying for all believers, not just those in the upper room with him, but he's talking to all believers of Christians to come. God is working to make us into the image of his son. And the second thing in verse 29, Romans 8, it says that he may be the firstborn among many brethren. What does that mean? He'd be the firstborn. It's not that Jesus was created. It's not talking about his creation. It's really talking that Jesus is the preeminent one. He's the premier one. And so that is what Jesus is saying here. Jesus would be the premier one that he might be among brethren, us. And so Jesus died. He was in the grave for three days. His spirit never died at that time. His body was dead, but it did not undergo decay, the Bible tells us. And then Jesus rose again. He was the first to rise again. Jesus, on the way to Nain, the city, was walking along, and he sees a procession, a funeral procession, walking up the road. And a widow had lost her only son. Now, in that day and age, that would have been devastating. She would have had really no one to care for her, no one to take care of her. Her husband's gone. Now her only son is gone. Jesus sees it, walks up, rise up, get up. He received, he gave the dead son back to the widow. But that guy died again. He, he couldn't raise himself up. He lived and died. He's dead. A few chapters in uh, John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, come forth. Remove the cloth. But, but Jesus, he stinks. Remove the cloth. Lazarus was raised from the dead. But Lazarus died again. Jesus is the one who died and he rose from the grave. He is the premier one, the first one. He is the one who God is doing these things for us, for whom he foreknew, he predestined. That means really in a simple way, God from time past looked ahead and determined to save you and I as his children. It's not God looked ahead and said, oh, there's Mark over there. You know, when he was about 20 years old, he was really in a hard place, in a bind. But look at him. He's lifting himself up by his bootstraps. He's really got some gumption in him. That's why I chose to foreknew. I could see that gumption in Mark, and I'd say, Jim, that is not what this is talking about. This is not what God's talking about here. God foreknew, basically foreloved. 
God decided from eternity past as he looked and he knew me, he knew those the beginning from the end, he just says, Mark, I'll send my grace on him. You, God has grace for you if you're his child this morning. And he predestined us. That also is looking from the end, like destiny. I like to think of the destiny. You know, God's destiny for us. He predetermined, predestined for us to be conformed to the copy of the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, that we get to rise in the redemption of life. Verse 23 says, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And so that's what God is promising to us. And then he talks about calling. We spoke about that. Calling um, also, as we said, is in the epistles, is effectual. God chose us. He's, he foreloved us. He decided our end time, our destiny. God determined all that, that he was going to extend his grace on us. And then God calls us. That's effectual calling. It's effective. We cannot negate it. We cannot thwart it. We cannot throw it away. We cannot abandon it. No one can steal it from us. We are called. God's going to accomplish this. And it says also, Paul says another aspect of calling is in Philippians 3.14. I'll just read it quickly. It says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So yes, it's an effectual call. Yes, it'll be completed. But Paul also says, I press on for the call. I work towards that end as well. And so uh, these are God's promises to us. Those he justified and these he glorified. Notice how here he's speaking of our glorification. That is, bringing righteousness to its completion. That is, in this life, my body is not glorified. I still have the flesh, the old man. Even though I have the new man, the inner man, the old man is still with me. And yet, Paul is speaking in past tense. He says, these he also glorified. He's not saying these he will glorify, which is true, but he's just pressing home the fact that God's sovereign will in your life as your, his child is that he's going to bring you to heaven's shore. No condemnation, no separation. God is the one who will glorify our bodies. That is making us finally holy, completely holy, without sin, without propensity to sin without any desire to sin any even thought of sin God is going to bring that to completion for you and I verse 31 what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who is against us as we look into the year ahead of us who can be against us no one he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all how will he not with us freely give us all things? 
You know Abraham in Genesis 22. Abraham was asked of God to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering. In Genesis 22, the author Moses graciously offers these words right at the beginning. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And he said, take your son, your only son, who you love, Isaac, and go to the Mount Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountain to which I tell you. And it says God is, Moses was gracious by the Holy Spirit. He says that God tested Abraham. So right off the bat in that passage, we are given that promise that God is working in Moses' life to refine him, to, com- to uh, prove his faith in God. And so here God tests Moses. Three times in this passage, it says, take your son, your only son. In verse 12, it says, you have not withheld your son, your only son. And in verse 16, you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. So if you don't know this story, Moses, or, um, Moses records this, that Abraham was told to offer the promised son. Isaac was through, was the promise. Jesus was his offspring. Abraham had no offspring. Abraham was 85 years old, and God came to him and said, you will have a son. He was 85 years old, and yet for another 15 years, that promise never was fulfilled. Moses is just getting older and older, and he's like, I couldn't have a son at 85. Here I am, 99 years old. And finally, the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, a year from now, you will have that son I promised you. Sarah, his wife, who was barren at 75, she was barren. She had to wait another 10 years, 15 years, for her to actually have Isaac. He was the son through the promise. All the promises were to come. And God is testing Abraham, asking him, will you give up your only son? And Abraham was ready. He was there on the altar. Isaac allowed his dad to bind him and to put him on the altar. But in this passage, it's wonderful that Abraham says, and Isaac spoke up to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, and he said to him, here am I, your son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. So right in the middle, God is showing that there is hope. And Abraham, it says in Hebrews, offered up was willing to offer him up, believing that God could raise him from the dead. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. It was he in whom was said, In Isaac your descendant shall be called. That is the the prophecy or promise. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead from which he also received him back as a type. So, Abraham and Isaac, what was going on there, God was using. 
And I think it's a wonderful picture. A lot of times we said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him. And we hear that and we think, oh God, he's just, you know, some robot up there. And he's like, Jesus, your time to go to the cross. You go die and, and all's good. And like, there's no love. There's no relationship. And I believe Abraham's story really helps us. We're like appalled at this. You're going to offer your own son. You're going to offer him as a burnt offering. Your only son, three times it said. And the Bible comes back as a type. Isaac was being offered as a type of Christ. When the father said to Christ, you go, he said it in love. It cost him. He had to turn his back against Christ on the cross. This is not just some mechanical working of some robots doing things. God loves us. He sent his son to die in our place. And uh, we need to remember that. He will not, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is the one who condemns? As we close at our time together, I want to close with one thought. As we enter into the new year, there are those who will try to bring condemnation against you. There are those who will try to bring uh, a charge against us as God's children to plant seeds of doubt. And we know all about them. Our society is against us. Our culture is against us. Who knows, maybe our neighbor's against us. Your boss might be against you. We know those things. But there is someone else who can bring condemnation and charges against yourself, and that is yourself. And so I want to just close with this thought. In Luke chapter 22, we see <clears throat> Jesus. He's just about to go to the uh, cross. It's the Lord's Supper. Jesus has gathered his disciples. He only has hours left with them. Jesus says in Luke 22:15, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until the fulfillment of it in the kingdom of God. So God, Jesus knew these ones he loved, his disciples, that he was going to be separated from them. He's desiring to eat this Lord's table with them. And what happens in verse 24? That was verse 15, verse 24. And there arose also a dispute among them, the disciples, as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. <laughs> right on the eve of Christ's death. You just tell them someone's going to betray me. Jesus, I'm desiring to eat this meal with you. I'm going to suffer. Jesus had told them that he was going to go to the cross and die. They just weren't getting it. And here are the stubborn disciples, stubborn me. He says, Jesus is saying, the kingdom of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who have authority over them because they are called benefactors. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table, the one who serves? It is, not, is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I, Jesus says, I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus is rebuking Peter in a few verses later. He says, I'll go to the cross now with you, Jesus. Jesus says, three times you will deny me. You, before the cock crows three times, you will deny me. And so we can accuse ourselves. Peter could have ended in much defeat. Peter could have been in grave trouble. 
it says in that passage, Peter, or actually Jesus says Simon, Simon. He's using Peter's old earthly name before he came to follow Christ. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has requested to sift you like wheat, to destroy you. And he says, I have prayed for you. In our passage in John, no condemnation, no separation. It says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. It says Christ also intercedes for us. Here in John, as we'll close with this thought, John chapter 21 says in verse 15, So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. Three times Jesus, this goes back and forth. Jesus is saying to Peter, Do you agape me? Do you love me? Agape love. And it's talking about the total commitment, the supreme devotion. Jesus comes after Peter had denied him, and Peter was remorseful, and Jesus was graciously seeking to restore him to the position of a disciple of health in Christ. Do you love me, Peter? Do you got me me? Peter says, I phileo love you. I phileo you. Basically, he lowers it to love. For him must place Jesus above all else. So uh, agape love is that complete devotion. Peter says, I can't answer that. I says, I phileo, I, I'm affectionate towards you. I, I'm brotherly with you. Jesus asks him again, Peter, do you love me? I phileo you, Jesus. Jesus asks him again, do you agape love me? And Peter says no. The third time, actually, Jesus says, he condescends to Peter's position and says, Peter, do you even flail me? He even questioned whether Peter even loved him there. Where did, G where did Peter in the end stand? Verse 17, and he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he'd said to him the third time, do you, uh, do you flail love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And so when condemnation comes, and it can come from all kinds of outside, but it can also come inwardly. As we look into this new year, my prayer for you and for us as a church, that we would be as Jesus restored Peter here. And it's Peter, Jesus says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you, stretched out your, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not want to go. So Jesus was telling Peter that he was going to die. Peter, you're going to stretch out your hands and they're going to drag you. And as tradition tells us, Peter died in Rome. He died on a cross. Tradition, a church tradition tells us that he refused to even be crucified as Christ did. That he said, I'll be crucified upside down because I can't bear to die the same way my Savior died for me. And he says he'll stretch out his hand. This is a beautiful promise. Peter went on for 30 years after this and ministered to the Lord. He was defeated 
Satan had asked the thwart to, to, to sift him and destroy him. Jesus says, I have prayed for you. The Holy Spirit prays for him. And Jesus said, you will be led forth and die and promised him. So what does that mean? He's telling him that you're not going to give up. You're not going to deny me again. And Peter never did. He was faithful to the end. That was a beautiful promise. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, where is 1 Peter? There we go. Oops. All right. In 1 Peter, Peter tells a beautiful story. He says in chapter 3, verse 20, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting the days of Noah during the construction of ark in which the few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So that ark held them up out of the water. The water was where people were drowning and dying. The ark was God's protection. And only eight sailed through that judgment and landed on the mountain and came out the other side. This is what Peter is talking about, verse 21. And corresponding, it's like a type. It's like a completion. It is in the New Testament, and it, an uh, antitype is the exact expression of a spiritual reality. So he's using the example of Noah's ark, carrying those eight safely through the judgment to safety. Verse 21, and corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. He's not talking about baptism going under the water, that type of baptism. But by an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, or Peter is saying here, that as we come and are united with Christ, as we die to Christ, as Romans 6 tells us, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life. So if you have been come united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly you shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. I believe Peter is basically saying this. As the ark saved those eight in Noah's time, the baptism keeps us from the water of judgment or God's judgment and bringing us safely to the heavenly shore and so my prayer as we come to an end now that God would convince each and every one of us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and as we end it says for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height or depth, or any created thing is able to separate us from the love of Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to the close of our time, we praise you and thank you, O God, that we can know for certain that you have a sovereign plan that because you have called us, you foreknew us, foreloved us, you predetermined the outcome, you called us, you justified us, you were even, we can speak of it as complete, you glorified us, you will glorify us, making us perfectly holy in heaven with you. 
We praise you that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We praise you that you sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross. He did not relinquish. He did not turn back. There was no other substitute like for Abraham and Isaac. But Jesus laid down his life that we might know him as Lord and Savior. Father, I pray in this hour, if there's any here that are entering into this new year, that not one more day would go by without knowing that you want us to come to know you as your Savior. The Bible says that it's your pleasure that none should perish, but all that come to repentance. So I pray, is there any here today that they might come afterwards, come seek me out, come up to the front, sit where they're, where they're at, talk to a brother or sister that they came with, but Father, that we would not leave this place without having assurance in our heart that we are led by your Spirit, that we've been adopted, that your Spirit bears witness with ours that we are your children. We give you all praise and glory. In Christ's name, amen.